I like that we don't say goodbye at the end of this podcast. Goodbye. Well, a bunch of trailers dropped for movies from 2020. You will have to jog my memory. I I do watch a lot of trailers, but not a lot of them stick unless it's uncut gems. The Ghostbusters. Oh, yes. Whatever the subtitle is. Well, if we want to talk about that, I just want to start with the stipulation that I have only seen one Ghostbusters movie, and it was the 2016 version. Really? I've never seen the original two. I've only seen the newest one. Why have you never seen the original? Uh, I don't know. I don't really have any good reason. At this point, I think it's a sin. It might be. I, I don't. I never had a good reason to not to. It looks good. I feel you like know? it's your kind of movie. It's a comedy and... I do enjoy me a good comedy, but I, I well, don't know. Well, an intelligent just... comedy. A kind of morbid comedy, almost. Again, everything I've seen from it looks good. Maybe it's just... The, the Ghostbusters discourse around the 2016 movie kind of exhausted me and kind of annoyed me the way Star Wars discourse does. And I never, because of that, I never desired to seek out the original movie. I have an issue with uh, letting fans of things destroy things for me, and I'm trying to get over it. So maybe we'll just watch the Ghostbusters movie because it looks good. It, I, I am, I'm sorry that Ghostbusters 2016 is your entry and only experience into that franchise and i I don't want to mislead people in thinking that i like the 2016 version i don't i don't think it's very good when i first watched it i thought it was okay i well i've only seen it once and it was in the theater and i thought eh, that was fine i never really wanted to watch it again i I watched it twice now i watched it with uh, nathan about a year ago Mm. along with jack and jill Oh, same night. We watched them both feature. one day. Double feature. A double feature of awful. Yeah, but the new one looks interesting. I'm interested in that um, that uh, that angle they're going with it. Sure. Yeah, I I don't know what to make of it yet. I it's Sony, so I don't really have any hope. But yeah. the trailer was not as bad as the uh, the Ghostbusters 2016 trailer. So. There's a little yeah, hope. It, it, I don't really like that Stranger Things kid. No. I don't know his name. Quite frankly, I don't really like the Stranger Things vibe or the aesthetic. Nothing against Stranger Things. Never seen it. Stranger Things is good. I'm sh- I know it's good. Seen, yeah. It's just the the 80s throwback 80s, nostalgia yeah. kids thing. It's, it's I don't know. Getting... It's never done it for me. That's all it is. Yeah, I like the Goonies. I like the first season of Stranger Things, but you can definitely see the effect Stranger Things has on a lot of different movies coming out now. Well, that's how With a lot of movies Ghostbusters are. Ghostbusters and It. Yeah, where you have a big like cultural milestone movie and then yeah, kind of this feedback response from the rest of Hollywood that thinks they can do the same thing. Sometimes they can, but most of the time it's just ripping off and... I have no nostalgia for Ghostbusters. I'm not a big fan of that Stranger Things kid, but I enjoy the subtlety in which they approached nostalgia. So, eh, I'll probably catch the first two Ghostbusters, maybe give it a watch, but it's not something I'm, like, crazy excited for. You know, I think I've seen the second Ghostbusters, but I honestly cannot remember it, and I'd say you really don't even need to bother. 
Just yeah. the original Ghostbusters. What were the other trailers? A Wonder Woman 1984. Looks all right. I See, here's the thing. I do like the 80s aesthetic. It's nothing about the 80s aesthetic because I really vibed with it in the Wonder Woman trailer. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's the kids. <laughs> it's It's definitely... It's hard to... I don't know. It's hard to associate with children. Yeah, I mean, it's not... I like kids, but... Yeah, same. I mean, I it's know. not even that necessarily, because I do like movies with kids in them. But I don't know. It seems like when you put kids and the 80s or, like, some kind of nostalgia-driven yeah. uh, thing, it just seems too nostalgia-driven. Like, it's obvious that they're going for that. It's it's a it's a movie you made to appeal to the inner kid of the people who lived in that area, and that point is hammered home with the fact that it is kids. Maybe it's just double dipping nostalgia. Yeah, and with Wonder Woman, it's probably equally as dipping into the nostalgia for that era, but it seems less obvious for me, and that's more of a personal preference than anything. But it's also dipping into that nostalgia through the perspective of people who didn't who don't have nostalgia for it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's an artificial nostalgia. It's not an 80s movie with characters who lived in the 80s. You have one who was a World War One or two pilot, and one who is just like an eternal type being. So, I don't know. It looked interesting. I do like... I, I like what I saw of the fight choreography so far. Sure, And I, I love Pedro Pascal. Oh, yeah. Pedro Pascal's good. He looked like he was going to have a, a good time. Everyone's taking all the good actors are taking their turns at being in a superhero movie. It's the thing to do these days. Well, you know, you get that you get that superhero paycheck and you can do a bunch of weird movies and then you come back. It's Nothing good. Wrong with that. I mean, they're getting Robert Pattinson with Batman and this is true. Well, Robert Pattinson's I don't know, he's doing like the opposite. See, he, he got his Twilight money and he used that to do good time and the lighthouse and a bunch of other stuff and now he's going back me i don't think he's out of money those twilight movies were huge maybe he feels more ready for that kind of thing now mm. i don't know i do think the dc movies have been taking a more interesting direction as of the past 2 or 3 years Con- consumer confidence in dc is slowly improving after the justice league and all the movies that came before it yeah Particularly, you know, Wonder Woman and now Joker. And I think if the new Wonder Woman does well, DC will have something that isn't worthless. That DC will have been revived from its kind of bland, kind of commercial state that it was in a few years ago. Well, we are living in a world where a movie about Aquaman did a billion dollars in the box office. So Uh, this is true. I saw two trailers and I don't think you've seen them. There is a movie called Togo. Have you heard of it or seen the trailer? No. Okay. Uh, Togo has... uh, It's with uh, Willem Dafoe. And it's a dog movie. Oh! I I saw... Yes, okay. I saw this trailer being played. I did not see this trailer. And then there was also... I did not know it was Willem Dafoe. Yeah. But you might be confusing it for something else which is they're making a Call of the Wild movie. That might have been what I was... Uh, oh, with Harrison Ford. With Harrison Ford. Yes, that I did see that trailer. Okay, what did you think of that? Um, The dog looked too fake to me to even really consider 
watching it. I don't have, you know, okay. Ironically enough, the thing that has opened my eyes to the possibilities of talking animal movies being decent is Paddington, which maybe is cheating. I there think it's could be an argument me be made for that. You think it's cheating? Yeah, well, with Paddington, Paddington more exists more as a kind of cartoonish character than he does as like an actual animal. Either way, Paddington unearthed something in me that got rid of my vitriol for talking animal movies, and I just checked out the trailer and I thought, okay, it looks interesting. I don't think it looks, you know, it's not terribly shot. I do enjoy Harrison Ford. But that dog just looked so fake and so cartoony compared to everything else that I thought, even if this dog dies, I will not care. See, I watched both of these trailers, Togo and Call of the Wild, and I thought they just looked awful. Particularly, the trailers themselves were kind of terribly edited because it gave away so much. It, It did, yes. I don't even expect trailers to conserve the story anymore. I mean, they good trailers do, and you can even have a good trailer that doesn't conserve, doesn't hide the story from you, and it's still a good trailer. Like that's not a prerequisite here. Yeah, but it did just, it was just too obvious the way it just showed. It almost was like it's just showing you clips in order of the movie, going through the steps. It's almost like a trailer that somebody would make to sell producers on the movie. It's selling the formula. Yeah. Oh, maybe maybe it was because I, I, for some reason, I don't know, I saw the thumbnail. Nine times out of ten, I would just go about my day ignoring it, but something compelled me to open it. And when I opened it, I was expecting something just painfully bad. And it wasn't painfully bad, it was just kind of bad, and maybe I'm mistaking that for being decent. I don't know. All I know is that I saw the trailer, I was not horribly offended and i thought that's okay i'm never gonna see it though well earlier this year i watched a dog's way home oh that's a classic how'd you like that you know i don't i for a few years now this has been like a this has been a trend in hollywood for the past five years maybe of dog movies yeah inspirational dog's Dog's way home the boy in the dog pajamas (laughs) jesus I've all I'd, I had always seen the trailers and said to myself, "This looks god awful." And then I watched A Dog's Way Home, and it was great. It might have been the worst thing I've seen all year, <laughs> by by far. And I mean, people were complaining about like Dark Phoenix and Aladdin. Don't don't even doesn't even compare to the manipulative trash of A Dog's Way Home. Yeah, I remember uh, I logged A Dog's Way Home on Letterboxd without watching it because the trailer gave away pretty much everything. Yeah, except the trailer didn't give away the terribly repetitive plot that moves about uh, a mile every... I don't know. I don't know where that uh, analogy was going. Well, but I get it, it. it. It's crawling. It was like incident with dog... Dog is threatened, dog gets out of incident, rinse and repeat about ten times, and that's that's just the middle section of the movie. There's this whole beginning part where a bunch of nonsense happens, a bunch of bunch it's just the most contrived thing you could think of. And it's just something about like dogs. Dogs are great. Let me just state that for the record. I love dogs. But they are terrible. <laughs> 
as characters in movies. You're not wrong. There's just I don't think there's a way to do it correctly. You are not wrong. As, as a, a like a minor side character, like the dog appears every once in a while, uh-huh. or as like a a, devi- a narrative device. Yes, dogs work. But when the movie focuses on them for more than a few minutes at a time, and as like tries to make them into like a big part of the narrative, uh huh. Nope. It's like either the filmmakers uh, shut down their thinking capacity to make clever scenes when dogs are involved. They just like dangling a shiny object, which is the dog, or the dog just makes everything seem worse. It's kind of just because the fact that you can't really make an interesting character out of an animal because they don't exhibit human traits. So it's kind of well, we read into them. Yeah. And we think they do. Well, does Isle of Dogs count? No. Okay. See, cartoon animals are different. Yeah. And that's in that vein where the the animals have been humanized to the point that a, a, a real dog or a CGI dog that's meant to look real could never be. Now, are you saying this is the case for only movies led by a dog or just movies that have dogs in them? Prominently featured a dog. Because you know what movie has one of the best dogs actors I've ever seen? What? It would be Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes. But that that's a dog that is used as a dog. Yes. True. For the... It's not trying to create some kind of inter- human experience interaction with the dog. I just think that that dog, that dog in particular, his performance is underrated. I will say... Uh, this is an interesting connection with something we'll talk about later. The the movie uh, Umberto D, mm-hmm. which is directed by uh, Victorio De Sica, prominently features a dog. It's an old man who gets kicked out of his home and can't pay for anything. It's an Italian neorealist film. So, uh-huh. you know, sad and dour, like bicycle thieves. And, but it's an old man and his dog just trying to survive. And that's a dog. That's a movie that prominently features a dog where... It works. Hmm. Mostly because it's an actual director and never tries to like actually create a character out of the dog. That's fair. The dog is more of a device to reflect the main character's situation. Like Los Amores Peros. Yes. Anyway, I will not be seeing these dog movies. No. Long story short. I probably will not either. I don't recommend other people to. As much either, as I but... love Willem Dafoe, I apologize. The only dog movie Willem Dafoe is in that I'll see is him crawling off on all fours in the lighthouse. Listen, I know in <laughs> the last podcast I said I didn't like that part, but I would take a whole movie of that over any of these dog movies. Only if he farted a bunch, too. Please. Uh, speaking of movies, we saw a an actual full-length movie, not a trailer. We did? Yes. Do we watch movies? Is that something we do? I I, I sometimes do. I, I probably do it too much. But what did we see? I only watch movies. We saw Knives Out. We did see Knives Out. And uh, I don't know how you felt about it, but I love this so much. I posted my review of Knives Out. I saw, I saw Knives Out early. Yes, you did. A few days early. Posted my review, and I gave it four stars out of five. And I was being conservative on this. I think 
I don't know if I've changed it yet. I think I did change it. I think it's at four and a half now. Uh, yeah, that's how I feel. It's because for me, the, the, the defining factor between a four and a four and a half, a four out of five is entertaining, strictly that. But I think there's a lot of layers to Knives Out as well. I think of it as a a four is a movie that does everything it needed to do to be good. A four and a half is a movie did everything it needed to do plus more. It went beyond what it needed to do to be good. And then a five-star ranking is something... I would only give a five-star ranking to a movie that did, at least from a... uh, Coming at it from a technical perspective, did everything superbly or that personally connected with me. Yeah, see, that's the thing is that I I have a similar thing where four out of five stars is you did everything you set out to do and not much else. A, a four and a half out of five stars is you did everything you set out to do while also kind of in either inventing your own spin on this story or just creating something completely new. And a five is just a purely emotional reaction. It could be very standard. I think La La Land is an example of a five star movie that is pretty by the books, but is just so emotionally rich that I can't help but give it five stars. And uh, yeah, Knives Out definitely... It's a murder mystery where the murder is solved, like, within 30 minutes. And yet, there's still a mystery behind the murder. Uh, story time real quick. I remember, I don't I, I want to say I was, was freshman year in high school, or a little bit before. Uh, it was a weekend. I remember very clearly it was a kind of a dreary day. And the... Yeah. I don't know if you ever had like this feeling of kind of like you're in a house and it's very, it's quiet, no one's home, and it's yeah dark in the house. Just just kind of, not a melancholic, it's a melancholic day. You're not necessarily feeling melancholic, but, and I turned on the TV and on PBS, there was a funny squat egg man on the TV on PBS. What? He looks like an egg hold on a second okay and he it was a murder mystery i eventually realized that this the the tv show that i was was watching that captivated me on this dreary day was uh, agatha christie's poirot which oh was a surprisingly it's an underseen and a very long-running british tv show from like the early nine early 90s late 80s to i think it ended in 2013 I've seen this. I've seen parts of this. I know you've talked about it before. It is, since that day, it has, that show in particular, which starring David Suchet, which is a, a criminally underseen uh, British actor, in the titular role as Hercule Poirot, the, the famous Agatha Christie's detective. <laughs> um, I have seen every single episode. There's something like, 60 episodes in there and most of them are feature length most of them are 90 minutes or more they're not necessarily all the best quality i recently did a reviewing of a lot of them this year and it's one of those things where you revisit something and you think oh maybe the quality has gone down and i don't like it as much now that i know more about film and in this case it was very much a i can tell this these aren't as good as i thought they were 
but I still love them as much as I did before. Since that early formative years, I have been very much in love with the murder mystery, the classic like British murder mystery genre. Of course. British being yeah, not, the keyword here. Well, it doesn't even have to be British. It just, it's not like CSI or not like a procedural yeah, murder okay. mystery. A murder mystery where it's very much a detective by himself, not with the police department or anything, investigating a, a usually a singular, maybe a plural murder. And typically there's a whole host of characters, a whodunit, a classic whodunit. The clue, like clue, clue would be a uh, example of an American. Uh, I think you would quite enjoy the anime series Lupin the Third. I know you've seen a few of the movies, but if you've seen the Hio Miyazaki one. Which is good. Yeah. The series itself is... I can see why Miyazaki, of all people, did a movie with it. Obviously, it was just a job at the time. But it's like, it's sort of, it captures the essence of Poirot or whatever. Was that is it Poirot? Poirot, yeah. Okay. It captures the essence of Poirot, but it is presented in, you know, an anime style. Anyways, continue. I think probably even more so the, the defining feature would be a, a quirky detective at the center. You know, someone who yes. is defined by their idiosyncrasies from everyone else. In and the typically narrative. also very good at their job, like scary yes, good. always. I don't think I've ever seen a murder mystery where it's not the detective isn't good at their job. Of, of those kinds. Yes. That's why I love Memories of Murder. Well, I, I yeah, and that's not necessarily a murder mystery. It's not the same that's thing. That's a yeah. murder thriller kind of That's true. mystery. I, I don't know. The genre is a weird thing. Yeah. At least the labels of genres. But mm. one movie I, I'd recommend in this whole murder mystery genre, and one that I thought a lot about during Knives Out, is a movie called Murder by Death. Interesting. Which is a parody of murder mysteries. And let's say, because that's the stupidest title I've ever heard it, if it, it wasn't. It is pretty stupid and written written to be so. But it has, there's a a parody of Poirot in there. There's a parody of columbo in the movie and oh. there's someone playing a parody of a uh macgyver no 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 no, no. Who, who, the the actor in casablanca humphrey bogart oh, there's humphrey a humphrey bogart, bogart yeah. uh parody but the whole thing is quite ridiculous and i'm not even saying it's the best movie but mm -hmm. i think it's that kind of movie that kind of direct parody seems like the precursor to something like knives out which is not a parody so much so, but a direct response and revival of the classic murder mystery. Well, that's the thing, is that I know that the the phrase, in especially in terms, or in uh, conjunction with Ryan Johnson, the term subverting expectations is kind of memed. Yep. But my God, did he do that exactly here? Because everything in its execution and its setup and its characters definitely uh echo those kinds of stories that you're talking about but i still after like the initial 30 45 minutes i can't think of a movie that quite proceeds like this one does i want to get into spoilers here but of course we have to well i'd like us to start doing the thing where we give our review first, our opinion and, and everything. And spoilers, yes. And then get into spoilers, because oftentimes we've been kind of mixing them in. Oh, so should we hold off a second then? Yeah. 
a summation of my thoughts on Knives Out would be that it is in a way like Parasite in that I don't know who wouldn't like it. It's very much a clap crowd pleaser. Yes. And it is excellently constructed as a both as a genre film, a murder mystery, and just as a movie that even people who are not as enthusiastic about the genre as I am would find engaging and entertaining. It's a full-hearted recommendation for me, if you haven't, if anyone hadn't seen it yet. And the thing is that I think really elevates it past other stories of this genre is that it is a story that has a, a open and shut case by the end of it. We know who did it, how they did it, etc. And uh, but it also alludes to the sort of more the greater evil, the more societal evil. Um, it's not just a a open and shut. Uh, uh, crime but it also helps to um, it really expands on a, on the kind of world where we understand why this crime took place not just how it happened but why it happened and I think that you know for the for the baseline mystery fan it's a very entertaining ride but for the people who want to look deeper into it, there's a lot of things just past the initial setup and mystery that you can read into. And there's a lot of not always so subtle, but sometimes pretty subtle uh, political commentary that I think it it just makes it so much better. Also, a very stacked cast. It is a stacked cast. Rarely, I think Mark Kermode said something around, uh, along the lines of, uh, with his review, that rarely does a movie that looked like it was this much fun to shoot actually turn out this good. And I think uh, this is one of those movies that you can tell everyone was just like, ooh, I get to... It, it, it just felt more like actors putting on a bunch of crazy costumes and doing silly voices, but all in service to the story. Well, that's one of the things about the whole the genre itself, is that it's... There's only so many permutations of mysteries that can happen. Yeah. And I mentioned this in my review that everything, the plot devices and character uh, archetypes seen in Knives Out, I have seen plenty of times before in other murder Mm -hmm. mysteries, but never done in this way and with this much kind of pizzazz in the way that Ryan Johnson does it. And particularly, I think, the the element of social commentary that's underneath there. Because oftentimes there is a tendency within the genre to forego character arcs and more like thematic significance and just focus on the whodunit aspect of it. And the fact that this movie branches out from just being a whodunit and instead is something a bit more richer thematically while also playing and using those character tropes Mm -hmm. it makes it memorable within the genre and and something that is has a lot broader of that appeal see it's it's crazy to me because i feel like the murder mystery genre or a, a lot of the famous murder mysteries um it'll be like they'll spend the first 10 or 15 so minutes setting up all the characters that it could be you know murder wise and then I feel like a lot of them tend to go for like a twist as to who it ended up being, 
you know? Yeah. Like, they pull a character or motivation out of nowhere, and it feels more like an episode of Scooby-Doo than anything. Oh, yeah. And the this one itself, there is a character from the cast of characters that is introduced that does it, and it, to me at least, did come out uh, as kind of a surprise. And then when you look at his motivations and how he did it, you're also like, oh, that was staring at me in the face the whole time. It's one of those things that everyone who makes a murder mystery thinks they cannot do because it has been too many done too many times before. But he kind of just proves you can still do it. You just got to know what you're doing. And he knows what he's doing. I enjoy this man so much. It's just a fun time. It is. Let's let's say spoilers from okay. from here on out, just so we don't have to tiptoe around the solution. So spoilers starting now. I'm just gonna say that for me, the solution to the mystery was solvable and almost not not I can't say obvious, but I felt that the fact that Ransom was the guilty party was the only possible solution to the mystery. Yeah. With that being said, I think that's only because I, my my brain and the way it works, like I talked last episode about how I get up a lot during movies and my brain just kind of overworks sometimes. Uh-huh. It's specifically wired for things like this, where during the movie, my brain was working overtime to pick apart and use my knowledge of the genre, just like John, Ryan Johnson did to make the movie, to deconstruct what was theoretically possible within the constraints of the movie. And in a murder mystery, you have to have a murderer. And it almost seemed like for a bit that there wasn't going to be a murderer. Like, it was a suicide. Which would not have been a satisfying conclusion. No. If Harlan had committed suicide just straight up, no one would have been satisfied. Nope. I knew someone had to have been a malevolent force in this, whether or not they actually killed him or thought they did or whatever it was. Yeah. And the solution to a murder mystery, usually the characters with screen time have to be the murderer. And the less screen time a character has, the less likely they are the murderer. Yeah. And the family kind of took a greater and greater backstage as the movie went on. Yes. And well, I feel like the family took a, a greater backstage after we found out that it was Anna de Armas who did it unintentionally. Right. I don't think just because I solved it, I don't think that the movie is solvable necessarily yeah. for the vast majority of audiences. I mean, obviously, it's going to be solvable to some people because everyone has their own opinion. It To me, it reminded me a lot of Chinatown, where you have a mystery just a simple mystery that uncovers a larger mystery. And I think that was where the first act break sort of went into. And that's how they, they solved the murder, but they didn't solve the mystery. And I thought that was a, a good way to keep the formula fresh. It was great. Uh, extremely intelligent on Ryan Johnson's part. Uh, yes. Writ- this- he wrote a great script. He He really did. And not only... Um, from like a, an actual narrative construction, because my God, this thing has so many ins and outs that in retrospect, all feel completely logical, but it's still just a labyrinth of plot and, um, uh, goals and whatever. But, oh my God, I th- I feel like we can't talk about this movie without talking about Daniel Craig. 
Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> e, I, I loved it. I loved the accent. I, I wanted more. I wanted more, and yet the movie gave me exactly as much as I think it well, needed I think, to. I think it's an interesting take on it because not only um, I feel like when you have murder mysteries typically it's the detective that is the protagonist oh it's not typically it's almost yeah always and this was definitely is there any marta what yeah, is marta yeah Mar- marta's marta cabrera is, yeah it's definitely marta's story and daniel craig is a side character but every scene he's in just all eyes are on him great the accent everything see the accent to me i don't even i can't even tell if the accent was good but it didn't need to be good it didn't it was entertaining it needed to be genuine he was giving it his all and you could tell yes uh, whether or not the accent was correct did you ever see logan lucky i did yes and i felt the same way in that movie where i thought man this guy because maybe he's just tired of being james bond and in the seriousness and bravado that that role requires but every time he's allowed to be funny, he goes all out. And oh my god, I don't think I've laughed harder this year than his stupid donut holes. <laughs> I forgot about that. Donut <laughs> holes. There's a smaller donut inside the donut hole. And in that, there's a donut hole. Something like that. It was... It's such a stupid line, but he delivers it with such passion that you're like, yeah. This mystery is a donut hole. It, he, but that, that's the thing I'm, I'm, uh, that I'm getting at is that this movie definitely feels very much like it could exist along, you know, an old Agatha Christie adaptation or um, the one you like. But it, it, it's very antiquated in its like over the topness of all the characters and the des- the design of the house is definitely uh, a callback to the a simpler time but it still feels very modern it is for me i very much see knives out as a ryan johnson's attempt at reviving the genre yeah for, for the past many years the murder mystery genre on the big screen is dead has been dead for a while because i feel like nobody has been able to do something new with it the 2017 was murder on the orient express from kenneth brana and how did you feel about that one i i think i liked it quite a bit but then again i am precisely the target audience because i enjoy kenneth brana's kind of mustache mustache twirling directing style He's, he's very theatrical I also enjoy Poirot in general, the the character, and I've read the book, and it's is, something I'm very familiar with. Oh, is he with. Poirot in that movie? Yeah, that's a, that's a oh, Poirot mystery. Oh, I was not aware of that. Okay, interesting. But that film, I think, because I, I rewatched it recently. Because you watched all of the, was it all the Agatha Christie adaptations or all the Murder on the Orient Express? I watched set? every single adaptation of Murder on the Orient Express okay. recently. Okay. And with that one specifically, I felt that the showmanship kind of yeah. Brana's showmanship kind of took center stage and it kind of sags in the middle where it's less the narrative oomph and the characters kind of aren't there as much i'm struggling to remember it uh, precisely i enjoyed my time thoroughly on, on my first watch although it sagged quite a bit on the second time 
Yeah, see, I, I saw it in the theater and I thought it was okay. But it's definitely... Well, that's the thing is that even that one... I know it's specifically an adaptation, but I feel like the whole genre of murder mystery, especially in this vein, is a very... It's an antiquated genre. Yes, but I think Ryan Johnson has proven that it doesn't have to be. Well, yes, that that's what I was saying before Knives Out. Because I find it similar to the noir genre, but over the past decade or two, the noir genre has seen this sort of... You know, the neo-noir that takes elements of noir and changes it into something new. But this one doesn't really change it into something new. It just makes it more modern. It's almost a neo-murder mystery. Neo-whodunit. Yeah. Yeah, neo-whodunit. So this is Ryan Johnson's attempt at reviving the genre. And Murder on the Orient Express from 2017 failed to do so on a wide audience scale. Yes, it tapped into the charm of those original stories, but did nothing to separate itself. It didn't bring anything new yep. to the table. It brought, it made it new. It made the story new. It gave it a nice, clean sheen, but it didn't update it for a, didn't change the story itself. Yeah. The, the stuff that mattered. The meat was not changed. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think the Ryan Johnson making a completely new murder mystery was that uh, that is how I think the the revival of this genre hopefully will come about because it is new, but it is also very much built upon the foundation of all the old murder mysteries. And I almost see the the narrative itself as a kind of meta co- commentary on that, where it's Marta Cabrera who is representative of this kind of new mystery. So you have this old house and this family, which very much is a classic murder mystery trope. Yeah. And if we were to substitute, that represents classic murder mysteries. And then you have Marta Cabrera, who is the main character. It's not the detective. This is something general. This this isn't completely new, but it is new-ish. It's not something that has been done often. Yeah. And the fact that she is very much representative of immigrants and a female leading character, a very progressive idea here. She's also very removed from the family, not only as a character, but in her general presentation as well. Right. And by the end of the narrative, it's the old, the the family has been supporting her. And then at the end, she is now the one that is, it's hinted at will be supporting them. And it's kind of the, the, the role reversal there of almost Ryan Johnson saying that, oh, look, I am here to take care of the old genre and shepherd it into the this new... See, that's an interesting read because that I also feel like that also kind of explains the, the earlier scenes with Benoit Blanc, who is almost kind of hesitant to do this kind of mystery because he seems confused from the get-go, like, why am I here? Who paid me? It's almost like he's he's pulling this kind of character out of retirement. But as the movie goes on, especially when we learn what happened, because I feel like maybe it's even explicitly stated that Benoit Blanc learns what really happens kind of around the same time we do. So once that story takes that turn into uh, finding out how or what really happened, I think he gets a lot more excited 
as a character. He's definitely a lot more active in the uh, in the murder investigation. So it's almost like Benoit Blanc is sort of representative of that that sort of uh, old antique spirit of the murder mystery getting excited that there's finally something new for it to do it's a movie man it's got layers it's exciting did you hear what what ryan johnson said about uh this movie no what do you say well he wants to do more movies with benoit blanc oh specifically. thank god <laughs> yes please give them to me <laughs> I will. I'll pay him money. I'll. I'll donate he, to a yeah. GoFundMe if he starts it. He said he wants to do more specifically with this character. I. And I think I'm that is a it. great idea. The, it's. I'm finding there's other parallels to movies that came came out this year, specifically Parasite, here, where, they're kind of spins on classic genres. Yeah. And, movies that are one genre but are also comedies. And Knives Out is very much a comedy. Yeah. And also one of the funnier things I've seen all year. It's definitely it's definitely consistently funny. I'm not going to say that every comedic line is hilarious, but I don't think there's any comedy that doesn't work. But it's interesting because I feel like this year in particular, there's quite a bit of movies about these sort of class issues. Yeah. Knives Out, Parasite, Us was a huge one. I think I read into the the class theory of the lighthouse, and uh, I don't know. It, it's not only an, a class type movie, but like you said, it's 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 re it's almost like the rebooting genres. Yeah, and it's very exciting because my guy, you need to see Brick now. Have you seen it yet? No, I said I was going to watch some Ryan Johnson, and I didn't. I will, I'll get to it. And you should also watch his supplements on the Criterion channel because this man is, he's very, he's like Paul Thomas Anderson where you can tell he's kind of a genius, but he's very humble about it. Yeah. He's an interesting guy. Speaking of comedy, uh, Harlan's mother, the, the old grandma. Yes. I, I the, found her, the... <laughs> her presence very comedic whenever she was in the film. And oh, yeah. I think when she was first introduced, the... The line was, Harlan's mom, how old is she? And then Jamie Lee Curtis says, we have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and you just look at her and because she's a major plot device, technically. She gives away the, the, the murder, kind of, if you're paying attention. Uh -huh. And, yeah. you know, Ransom, is that you? <laughs> I don't know. Old people are funny. And, the, and I mean that in the best way possible. I, also, I can people. we just take a moment here to appreciate just how wholesome of a man Christopher Plummer played. It was great seeing Christopher Plummer in He was he was a wonderful old man in this You movie. know, I never watched All the Money in the World. Yeah. This... Did I? I forgot that movie existed. Yeah, but I haven't I watched The Sound of Music a lot when I was a kid. And he's obviously in that as a much younger man. And that's my idea of Christopher Plummer. I haven't seen anything with him in it that kind of changed that perception of him in my mind. And this very much shifted him into, I almost thought like he had been dead or something. Because <laughs> I genuinely haven't seen anything that like, caught my attention with him in it. But this kind of revived him as an actor in my mind. And I, it was wonderful seeing him in a role 
he he was giving it a you know he was giving it a lot everyone was giving it a lot in this movie lakeith stanfield his assistant i don't remember his name he's a fan of the books um also, speaking of people we didn't know were alive, M. Emmett, M. M. Emmett Walsh is in this movie. Who? The uh, the the cop from Blade Runner, the one who brings Deckard out of retirement. They're in the smoky room going over the replicants. He's also the creepy guy with the cowboy hat in Blood Simple, the villain. I don't know why I'm not. Oh, no. And then that Walsh is, like, one of the best character actors ever. Oh, I'm sure I know him. I'm, I'm so sorry. Oh, no. I feel like you need to look up a picture of him now. That's what I'm doing right now. M. Emmett Walsh. It's M, then the letter, or the word Emmett and Walsh. Also in Raising Arizona, apparently. Well, what did he play? Who did he, the, play? he played the guy who was in charge of the security cameras. Oh... Oh, yeah. And also yeah. Frank Oz is in the movie. Yes. As the lawyer. I didn't know that. I, I had never seen Frank Oz before. I might have, but I think it was the first time I've ever seen him in person. Yeah, I I don't remember him from much. For some reason, I thought the guy who played the lawyer was the guy who played Cy Abelman. But yeah. But it is a stacked cast and a lot of classic actors in there. And a lot of new newcomers. Anna de Armas. Absolutely well, yeah, wonderful. She, she, it was amazing in this movie. Simply charming. She's she's what makes the movie work as well as it does. It, well, her, her and Daniel Craig, let's be honest. Well, yeah, but, you know, she's our main character. and That is the thing I was most excited about with this movie, is that by the end, they preserved her purity. Yeah. Because even the whole time I'm thinking, yeah, she's innocent, but she's going to be living with the guilt that she accidentally killed this guy. And then at the end, it wasn't her fault at all. And she, if anything, yeah, I'm just like, oh, thank God. Thank God. I was just so happy when she got it all. Just so, so happy. Mm-hmm. And she does, uh, She a lot of her acting in this movie, like when she finds, uh, w- when she's uh, given the news that she gets all the money, and when she finds the body in the basement, she does this very dramatic acting that I feel like on anyone else it would be melodramatic almost or overacting, but she does it very, she's very convincingly dramatic. Her and Daniel Craig would make this movie work, but I also love Chris Evans being an asshole. Chris Evans was fun. Chris Evans, I feel like he hasn't had this much fun since he played, uh, I forget the character's name, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. I almost imagine him just driving up to set and just walking on and starting, just, just saying his lines. And just just go, pull the camera, I'm having fun. Well, that's the thing. I feel like everybody was having fun in this movie. Oh, yeah. But no one was having more fun than Daniel Craig. Well, it's hard to not be having fun if you're the one, if you're the one doing the crazy accent. The, the thing is, I read a little, a few interviews with Ryan Johnson about this movie. Apparently, one of the first days on set, like the first Daniel Craig day... Um, to my knowledge, there is nothing in the script that indicates that he has a southern drawl, <laughs> but Daniel Craig just showed up and started saying his lines in that accent, and Ryan Johnson's like, okay, sure. Well, th- uh, I thank him very much for doing so. Yeah, the, l- let me tell you, there's, there, I don't think there's a single movie currently being made right now that excites me more than the idea of a Benoit Blanc film series. 
Give me more. I need more. Give me more uh, Kentucky Fried KFC. <laughs> no, it was uh, CSI KFC. Oh, yeah, that same thing. <laughs> That's the thing is that I, you know, I know this isn't going to go as uh, it's not going to be very. I, I I want this to be nominated performance wise, but, you know, you know how they feel about comedies. Yeah. It... I'm still lamenting over Ray Fiennes not getting an Oscar nom. For Grand Budapest. Yeah. I still can't believe that happened. Yeah. Yeah. This is good. It's a great this movie. Very good. Yeah. Nine out of ten for me. I need a why. I'm probably going to go see it again at some point. Maybe with my mom. I really want to see it again. Just for... I, w- I know I said I might see it twice before this podcast, but I you know, I didn't get around to it. I thought you I didn't I need to. Yeah. You know I am seeing again on Saturday for the fourth time? Uh, what? The parasite. Oh, I'm taking my brother to see it. Oh, he finally uh, consented to, to see. Well, I it was. It's not that he's been wanting to see it. It's the lighthouse that I can't get him to see. Ah, um. So you yeah. you compromised and went with parasite. I compromised because I okay again parasite. Not to go back on that conversation, but it's a movie that I can't feasibly think of anyone watching and not liking. So I thought to myself, okay, I don't know. The, most South Korean movies are pretty hard to get. Maybe this one, since it's so popular, it'll be an exception. But I thought to myself, I need him to see it in the theater because it is an experience that should not be interrupted. Because when you are in there, you are locked in. It is a much different, a much better movie. I feel like all movies are kind of that way. But yeah. Anyways, our second movie. The Earrings of Madame Day. The Earrings of Madame De. De, sorry. De. A film uh, by Max Offels. Offels. It sounds German. Is it German? No, I think... Uh, it has yeah, to be French, yes, right? Yes, yes, yes. Is think, he really? I think I heard that he fled... Your, as many directors did, fled Europe from the Nazis. That's fair. Well, good on him. It, it is surprising. The more you research into directors, the subgenre of directors who have fled the Nazis, there's a yeah. surprising amount of them. That uh, doesn't surprise me. Yeah, so this is the first movie off the critics list, not the director's list. It is. I'm going to give a brief synopsis. Um, it is a it is a uh, period piece taking place in French France in the 1800s. Not entirely sure when. Late 1800s, I think. Yeah, mid to late, somewhere around there. Um, and not to give, I'm not going to give away too much, but it is basically a period piece love triangle. It's a pretty classic story in that regards. I don't want to get too much into it's a it's a fairly complicated movie plot wise. Well, a woman has a pair of earrings that yes. she must sell to raise some money for her debts. And these earrings were present from her husband. The earrings and her go on a journey that leads back to her and to love and drama. So who's gonna start me or you? So general thoughts on the film? This this is a movie that neither of us have seen before. Yes, it is one that I owned. I I bought previous uh, prior to knowing we were going to watch it for this, so it gave me an excuse to finally watch it. I I will say that of the new movies we've watched so far, this is the the best time I've had watching a movie from the BFI list. I'm gonna have to say it's the same. Uh, I mean, I still I like Late Samurai. It's oh, definitely. I'm- that's that's a different thing. I'm just 
that's in a pantheon above itself. Yeah, you're saying the ones you haven't seen before. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, something new. Well, I I haven't seen any of these except for Don't Look Now. Um, and yeah, this is uh, this is probably easily my favorite. And I kind of figured this would be the case because I'm starting to understand a very clear correlation between the director's picks and the critics' picks. Even though we've only watched one critic pick. Now. Yes. Oh, well, I had a feeling going into this because there's something that drew me to this movie before I even knew it was on the podcast to to the extent that I bought it. For me, the distinction so far has been that the directors tend to pick movies that are very influential in their visual style but can be lacking in the story beats, whereas the critics tend to pick things that are a little more narratively rich while also still containing very good, if not not necessarily revolutionary, uh, uh, styles and executions. And uh, yeah. I think I'd agree with that assessment in general. I know there are some exceptions on both both sides of the list. Yes. And we'll, we'll get to those eventually. But I think that of the movies we've watched so far, even including maybe, maybe not so much Don't Look Now because it is English. Um, yes. I think The Earrings of Madame De is a movie that if just a, a random audience person who is kind of into film – and maybe not as into foreign film as we are, if they watched it, they would like it. Yes. It is a film that has some appeal and is not a, it's not a, like I, I think I, I think I said this with Don't Look Now. It's an artful film, but it's not necessarily an art film. Yes. And I feel like it, it definitely feels, what what year was this made? It was 50 something, wasn't it? 54, 50, I think. 53, oh. according to the criterion, whatever. Well, then I think that's more correct than I am. Yes, so this is, you know, still in the, it's not a studio film, but we're still in the studio era where a lot of the uh, more mainstream movies don't necessarily take these big risks um, as far as uh, the actual filmmaking goes. But I think there's some very just absolutely lovely sequences in this movie, but it's a very stagey. It's, it's, it's almost a Hollywood movie done by a French director. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I was thinking it's it's more Casablanca than Citizen Kane kind of thing. Yes. No, I agree. Casablanca is a very apt um, comparison, especially the gambling scenes. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's just one of those. It's it's just one of those stories that it never stops moving. It's a very it's when you look at it, the specifics of it, it's actually a pretty complicated plot. As far as, you know, how often the earrings move and the information we know versus what they know. But at the end of the day, it's just a it's a very well done love triangle with a pretty, uh, pretty tragic ending. I'm not going to lie. It, it's kind of a tragedy that sneaks up on you. Yeah. That, I don't know. I was expecting it to all go well. I don't think I was fully expecting the f the the kind of darkness of the very end. Mm hmm. It wasn't going well, but you didn't expect it to be completely tragic, I think. But it does make sense where it goes. Yeah. We've kind of sum summed up our, our basic ideas, and I just, in general, say that if you get your hands on this, I think people should uh, should watch it. It's good. If you if you like romance, classical romance movies, this is a, a movie you, you'd probably like. Language Barrier Aside is probably the most accessible movie on here. From the beginning, it had me, which was, has not been the case for... 
a few of the other movies. Even Lay Samurai, that took me two times to watch to uh, get into it. <laughs> like I said, uh, it, it's very economic with its storytelling. It's not restrictive in the way that it shows its information. There's definitely some very, you know, well shot, very, uh, very visual sequences. But as far as the actual plot goes, there's not a single line or scene that's wasted in the way that I feel like a lot of those older movies are. Some of this comes down to uh, Ophuls was in Germany and then fled Germany to the United States. So he made movies in Hollywood before he went back to France and started making a lot of his more well-known movies, including Madame Deux. Deux. He had experience with the, you know, the Hollywood studio system, mm-hmm. but also his very his foreigner perspective. It does it almost feels like it in retrospect a kind of blending of the two where it's not It feels very old Hollywood. Yeah. But it is emotionally it's it's like on the on the visual end it's very old Hollywood, but as far as the story goes and the tragic aspect, very much in the uh in the zeitgeist of Europe of the time. It's a French movie in, in kind of the cultural sense of mm-hmm. of that that it's very much French or Europe in general, you know, it's mannerisms and kind of the old social order and uh, commenting on that with in the guise of this relationship. Yeah. The thing that made the movie work, if I were to go from it from a structural perspective, is that, you know, in something like uh, Last Year at Marion Bad or Soy Cuba, we haven't had clear character arcs yes. in those movies. Yes. There has not been a through line through them or the through line has been uh, obfuscated by something else. Yeah. With Madame De, there's very much a beginning, a introduction of a character and a change to the end. Even more so, the the earrings themselves as they progress through the film take on different connotations. And yeah, kind the of earrings also have, have an arc. arc. Yeah. yeah. It, it's great. That's that's what I loved about it is that the beginning it was nothing more. It was a material possession, something that had no emotional value because it was from a man she did not love. But towards the end, they're the exact same earrings, but she is like selling her furs, something she cherished in the beginning of the movie to get those earrings back because in the hands of the Duke, it takes on this completely new emotional context. And I thought that the movie, the, the Madame de herself is obviously someone who at the beginning is sort of materialistic and is sort of bored with that and seeking real love. And I like that how it sort of, it exchanges her materialism for that real love while also not really abandoning the materials, if that makes sense. I saw it as a, the arc was from superficiality to authenticity, Mm -hmm. where the beginning, our very first shot is, you know, she has all of these clothes and things and she's trying to decide what to get rid of she's very kind of almost defined by her material wealth Mm -hmm. and she's nitpicking over things oh i can't get rid of my furs i can't get rid of this and you know kind of ironically she ultimately chooses her wedding present of the earrings yeah which says a lot about the character and how she feels about this gesture of love from her from her husband or 
at least a gesture of marriage, maybe not so much love. Like we said, it, it, the earrings become associated with love later on, of genuine emotion for someone else. Yeah. It's interesting in the, the, the I think the two church scenes are also very thematically significant, where the first time she goes, she prays that she gets a good price for the earrings. And the second time she goes, she's offering her earrings. She's offering her earrings. She seems much more genuine. The first time is about wealth, and the second time is seems like a genuine outpouring of her heart, of genuinely asking the saint for something she cares about, rather than just, oh, this is this is what you do. You go to the the church and you offer something to the saint to for good luck. I also think that a huge part of why this works is that um, I feel like a, a lot of times in these romantic comedies where the uh, a woman's like um, courtship is the main goal or the main desire, uh, you the one who stands in the way of her courtship is typically a cartoonish villain. I think of Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. Uh, but this one, I felt like the general, you know, he's still a bad guy at the end, but he's a bad guy who I understand and kind of sympathize with because yes, they obviously don't get along or they don't have that spark that they used to have. Yes. He obviously has a mistress, but towards the end, there's a few moments where you can tell he's genuine as as far as him trying to win her back or trying to preserve their marriage but i still don't think that necessarily makes him not the villain it's particularly with the general but also with um the general and then donati the italian count yes and i think the three of them this love triangle is it, it supports the film in the way that all three of them are key elements of this triangle where each one is coming at it from a completely different angle the, the forces of society are exerting themselves onto this love triangle that inform the decisions of the characters that make them very interesting to watch. None, none of the three are particular are, are underdeveloped. Donati is probably the most the least developed of the three, and I still think he's a very interesting element of this this three side. He's just charming. He's yes. genuine. In a way that the general is not, and that contrast is what makes both of them very interesting to to watch yeah also i think that donati looks like a mixture of robert redford and colin firth i don't know if you did your research but donati is uh, as i mentioned earlier is played by victoria uh, victorio de sica the italian neorealist director i did not know this bicycle thieves and uh Umberto that's the director of bicycle thieves i i didn't know this until i watched this but he apparently was an actor in hundreds of roles and a director of Italian neorealist movies. Wow. Which makes him all the more impressive. I'm looking it up right now. Because he gives a great performance. Oh my God, that's him. Oh, he did Umberto D. I've been wanting to watch that forever. That's a good one. I'd recommend it. Oh, that is just interesting. Okay. Well, damn. Either way, still a great actor. Yeah. The general, too. There's really three really great performances here. Oh, all three of them are fantastic. I literally can't think of a single... Okay, no, the the jewel keeper. That's the only other person I can think of. Oh, the the maid. She's also good. I also like... I know this is, you know, not necessarily as relevant, but I also enjoy the fact that um, I feel like a lot of these movies, um, when they have, you know, 
two men, especially in this time, competing over the courtship of a lady. Sometimes I feel like the lady is like in her 20s and the guy's in their 40s or 50s. Madame Day definitely didn't look old, but she looked older than I feel like Hollywood would have made this woman. There, there's a general sense of authenticity in, in the film that I think does separate it from Hollywood movies. Yeah. Where often there is that age difference, and that does bother me a lot. But here, it's very much... It, it's it's a film that's mannered and almost theatrical at times, but it does feel that the romance part of it is coming from a genuine place and not just from like a male gaze kind of place. Yes. Yeah, so the, the actress who played Madame Day was in her mid to late 30s. Which I'm like, okay, that's nice. Because I saw the Duke and I thought, oh no, this guy looks a little too old for her. But no, I can see that in mid-30s. But yeah, no, it definitely... that That's why I think this movie is so interesting is because it, it takes the execution and the style and the look of a typical Hollywood movie and infuses it with a lot more humanity that I feel like a lot of the older Hollywood movies don't have. And I guess the modern ones too. I think my favorite scene in the whole movie, uh, I, f- I feel like a lot of these kinds of movies where we have two characters that are supposed to fall in love, it becomes either it takes too long or too little for them to fall in love, you know, not enough time. All we needed was that that beautiful montage of them dancing at the ball. Yeah, it was a great montage. It was so nice. And I thought, you know what? They went from not knowing each other to being completely in love in three or four minutes, but I believed it. Because it was a short time as far as runtime goes, but it it spanned a pretty long time, and just that small window of their interactions was so genuine. I thought, okay, yes, this is nice. It's beautiful. I believe it. I'm on board. I mean, that goes just in general to, to romance movies where... There's two ways you go about it, and it's either the movie is about them falling in love and it takes a while, or it's quick and over and done with, and the main plot happens from other things. Mm-hmm. And in in the kind of quick over and done with, it can feel very superficial or contrived sometimes. And this is definitely this feels it doesn't feel contrived, but it is in a way. Yeah. In their two meeting, their two chance meetings. And all that, but there's an artistry and a, a authenticity behind it that, like in the dialogue and that montage sequence, that f- makes it feel like they've earned this romance, mm-hmm. and that we can go from here. Because the other thing is, the the more time you spend on it, the more realistic it has to be. And the Shakespeare quote: "Brevity is the soul of wit." The the movie in general, but also that seemed a very witty kind of romance. Almost playful at times. Yeah. Perfectly paced, because it knew that the, the main conflict wasn't will they or won't they. It was what's what's the fallout of their romance. Well, yeah, that's another thing that I thought was really interesting, is that for a romance movie, there's a surprising amount of tension. Like, uh, in the scene where Madame Day, like, uh, the Duke gives her the earrings back. She's like, oh, I recognize these earrings or whatever. And she has that plan where right before her and the general go out... She's going to go switch the gloves and pretend she just found the earrings. When that happens, obviously, you know, the general knows what happens to the earrings. And I don't know that scene. I just got as soon as the general saw those earrings back and I'm like, oh, madame, you don't know what's going on here. 
He knows, madame. He knows. It's a very good use of uh, the audience knows something the characters yeah. don't. And I'm like, this, I'm, I'm kind of nervous right now. And this is a, it's a, it's a little, it's a little chic romance movie. Yeah. Those last like 20 or 30 minutes are just, I couldn't stop. The thing I probably enjoyed the most uh, filmmaking wise was the wonderful moving tracking shots of the movie. There's a few. Particularly, I noticed very in the beginning, the very first shot is really, really wonderful. When she's just going through her belongings, looking for something to sell? Yeah. It's a, it's an over-the-shoulder, but also kind of POV in a way, where it is, her, she's looking for her belongings, but... Once you hear the voiceover, or not the voiceover, but her voice as she makes these decisions. Then there's... The other one I really liked was in the jeweler's shop, when she first enters. Yeah. Oh, up the and stairs? And see her enter, and then the camera goes with them up the stairs. The I just thought about the lighthouse when I saw that. That, that yeah. was a lot of fun. I like those kinds of complex tracking shots. Yeah, you know, because a lot of those older movies, they, you know, 90% sound stages, not a lot of actual locations, so it's kind of hard to make them feel anything but staged. But no, it, it was nice. It glided. The camera was very, very active. It was great. Uh, well, well shot movie. Not too bombastic with its use of like technical cinema. Yeah. Not like last year at uh, Marion Bad or Soy Cuba where the the technical qualities kind of overshadow the story. Yeah. Where these are very much the technical aspects are in service of the story. I kind of give movies up till around 1960 a pass because I feel like at when you're getting really experimental with the camera and stuff like that, that's typically an art house movie, one that is more than likely not going to be seen by a lot of people. So when you have a, this is obviously a much more commercial attempt at filmmaking, I especially in this era, I give it a pass, but it was still very well executed. It was charming in its simplicity. It needed to get spicy when it got spicy. It was nice. And I do love me a movie with a train in it. Oh, yeah. That's another interesting scene is that we, we get the scene earlier with uh, the general and his mistress, and he gives the mistress a kiss goodbye on the train, but he merely kisses his wife's hand goodbye on the train. And and then when he leaves the train and he's walking down the platform as the train leaves, good shot. Oh, great shot. It's interesting. I was thinking about how a lot of my favorite romance movies are this kind of kind of ill-fated romance where from the beginning whether you know it or not the relationship is doomed because of outside forces working on the Mm -hmm. on the pair and you know you you think of in the mood for love it's very similar in the way that the outside pressures of this this kind of affair this affair that they're having and this desire to maintain appearances to society prevent the the couple from getting together yeah you also have something like paris texas which is very different where this family is coming together but because of Mm -hmm. masculine stereotypes and things like that it's very much a commentary on that that the the husband and wife don't get together but the mother and her son do that's interesting because now now that i'm thinking about it all my favorite romance movies like in the mood for love uh chunking express before sunrise magnificent uh, ambersons there's another one where 
societal pressures. Yeah. I'm starting to think that all, all those movies that I love that I tend to be romantic, aren't they don't necessarily end up happily together after. Yeah. And I think that's, yeah, that's a good point. That is a good point. I never thought about it that way. 500 Days of Summer. That's another one I very much enjoy. McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Oh, yeah. That's not so much a romance movie, but it does have a little a little budding romance that it does have, gets yeah. shot at the end. Oh, it's, uh, yeah. No, you, you, that's a good point. But no, this is, uh, I don't know what else to say. This is just wonderful. You know, it's it's a economical storytelling. It's witty, clever at times. And it was just fun to watch. Yeah, I can't find anything that I, I, I didn't like about this movie. I'm, I'm still not entirely sure about the, the tragic ending. Because I guess when I'm thinking about, you know, the the alternatives, I, I think that those wouldn't work as well. Well, do you think she died? So I'm going to need to sit. Oh, yeah. I thought it was implied. Oh, it's implied, but it's not obvious. Yeah, I think she did. Should I say, it's obviously implied, but it's not... It's not explicitly stated. I think so, because I think the whole point of this movie was that she found that love that she never had, and I don't think she would want to live without it. So I think even if she didn't die right there, she's as good as dead. The sort of reunited in death thing. Yeah. Because it felt tragic at the end. I don't know. I, I, yeah. I guess I never even considered the fact that she didn't die. I guess that is true. They don't. Maybe that. Maybe that uh, eliminates any hesitation I had with the ending, so I can just choose it. <laughs> choose your own ending. Well, yeah. I, the so I know I texted you about this this other segment that we could do from time to time, of where we we spitball ideas for unnecessary sequels and maybe even reboots of some movies. Of Madame Du. Yeah, and I was thinking about Madame Du and. I think a remake is less of a crazy idea than it sounds. Yeah. I think it could work really well in a modern, updated setting. No, you're, you're not wrong. But who, who would you get to play these characters? I don't know. You need someone... I almost feel like... Uh, did you ever see Carol? Oh, yeah. With Kate Blanchett yeah. and um, Rooney Mara? I almost feel like Kate Blanchett would be a good lead. See, I was thinking either Kate Blanchett or Emma Stone. Yeah, you could choose to go... It might even be more interesting of a choice to go with a younger relationship, but I'm not sure yeah. what is what would be the societal pressure that cooks this affair. I don't know. I think I like this movie... I think I like this movie because they're a little older. Yeah. Because they... Obviously, you can't have somebody who's... Yet, the whole point of this, the Madame de character to me, is that... She is kind of over the initial honeymoon phase of her courtship and the materialism. And as she gets older, she kind of understands what love really is. So I think you kind of need an actress that's a little bit older. No, you do. And you see in the beginning of the film that they're very much set in their ways of the marriage. The rules yeah. and boundaries have been set of, you know, she's flirtatious, but she doesn't take it into anything too far. And he has his own life, and they are not necessarily happy, but they are content with not being like a couple in the traditional sense. They're married, but they're not a couple. They're not in yeah. love. And it's, you know, this outside presence. They've been married for a while and all that, and then it's finding true, genuine love in old age and kind of 
that spark of trying to reclaim youth is oh my god you know who i just thought of from madame de what about greta gerwig well i can't say no to her you can't ever say no to Greta. well there's always plan b which is tilda swinton all three of them i thought that was plan a <laughs> I thought that was given, and then we were going with the less obvious answer. I know, okay, so since we're on this topic, I'm just going to make this a quick side note. The one time I thought to a movie, thought to myself, oh, this movie would be perfect to be remade today, was actually, I think I told you, uh, Kind Hearts and Coronets. Oh, yeah. Get Tom Hiddleston to play the lead guy and get Tilda Swinton to do the Al Guinness thing. Well, Yes. That is a topic for another time. I don't know. I think this one's a little too a little too classic, but I also think it's not one of the more egregious ideas to be remade. I I could see it. I couldn't see it happening. I don't I don't see the market for a remake of Madame de but I could see as like a director's passion project. I feel like with a movie like this that is so classic but not necessarily popular you it's more of an adaptation than a remake almost inspired by kind of thing too yeah i i would not be upset it's like a i think departed situation where it's inspired by uh yeah because it's a movie itself that is so ingrained in the sort of classic film sphere that anyone who is seeking it out and wants to have it remade is obviously passionate about it Mm-hmm. So I don't necessarily think that a remake would turn out badly. Yeah. Because it's not popular. But yeah, I wouldn't be opposed. I just can't, I, I can't think of the cast. If we're going to make this a segment in the future, I can start thinking of the cast ahead of time. But as of right now, I am clueless. But this, I, I think this is a, a fun little mental exercise that, you know, we cast Tilda Swinton in a lot of stuff. and Yeah, well, I will, I will use Tilda Swinton sparingly. Yeah, she's the trump card. She is too good. She's just the Joker. You still haven't seen Suspiria. I have not. I have not. I should see that. I have I have a lot of time. I have like a whole week and a half off and I just plan to watch a bunch of movies. Yeah. But the main question is, does this deserve to be on the list? I'm going to say, for me, maybe. It's funny because the past couple weeks I've been saying, I can see the argument for this because it is technically innovative you know with soy cuba and last year at marion bad and all yada 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 but with this it's less technically innovative and yet extremely well made and entertaining yeah and kind of the reverse side of that where it's very entertaining and but is it one of the greatest movies ever and i don't think it's as clear me personally if i was making a list yeah sure why not i'd like to see this this movie on here more than a few others well, the thing also is that I know that this is a huge influence on a lot of filmmakers. It's not as explicitly um, influential as something like Lay Samurai or Don't Look Now. But I know Paul Thomas Anderson obviously thinks highly of it. I know Wes Anderson is a big fan of it. Um, Edgar Wright and Christopher Nolan are both big fans of it. But it's not it's not those kind of movies that you can look at it and see and see echoes of that, of these styles in later movies. It is just a perfectly told story, a timeless story, albeit a simple one. Yeah, it's not a piece of film history, but it is a very well-made movie. But maybe it's that perfect execution that's a lesson in itself. Yeah. I think it deserves to be on here, although... Lower end for me. Yeah. Because I do think this is a great... I would say 9 out of 10 for me on this one. 
Big fan of this I, one. Nine out of ten, same. It's it's currently my favorite of the movies we've seen so far. It is. Blade Samurai is still my favorite, but it is a extremely solid number two. Next time on Split Take, let me pull up. Oh yeah, I don't know what it is. Next week on the BFI list, we have The Killing of a Chinese Bookie from 1976 and directed by John Cassavetes. Oh no. I I am morbidly curious. Me too. I tried to watch this a few months ago. Oh, how'd that go? I got about 20 minutes into it and I stopped. This goes for any movie. If you if you feel the need to stop it and not watch all of it, I, uh, I'm not going to say anything bad about that. I'm going to watch all of it, not only because I'm dedicated to this podcast, but also, you know who is a huge fan of this movie as well? Is also Paul Thomas Anderson. And a while ago, I watched this video of um, shots from a killing of a Chinese bookie um, that directly influenced shots from Inherent Vice. There's a lot of visual similarities between the two movies. I love Inherent Vice, and let's see if I like this one. Cassavetes has a bit of a reputation is all I'm saying. So my previous experience with Cassavetes is he gets really interesting performances out of his actors, although I'm not necessarily as enthralled with the the filmmaking side of his work. Yeah. And that's, you know, he's a theater, I think he started as a theater director, so that's, makes sense. Anyway, I'm I'm morbidly curious. There's a good chance that I I won't like it, but I, I hope I really do hope that it's oh, something Oh, I'm hoping that I... for all these that I'm going to like them. But that's, you know, not always the case. What else would we want to watch next week? I don't think... Because we're kind of in like this weird middle ground where... Th- not this week, but the week after, we have, you know, Star Wars, Uncut Gems, a bunch of movies coming out. Yeah, I'll be watching Star Wars next week. Yeah, I don't know. But I was looking at the list. There's Bombshell, Dark Waters, which is currently out. We could talk about Marriage Story. We've already seen it. I think I think Marriage Story is worthy of a conversation. We could even uh, Jumanji. No. If we want to do a TV show, we could talk about The Mandalorian. I don't know. There's some options. We don't have to decide now, but those are... We could do mini yeah. discussions on one or two of them if we've... We'll figure it out. We could watch Parasite again. Because <laughs> I will. We, we could. <laughs> I like that we don't say goodbye at the end of this podcast. Goodbye. Well, no, no, I'm saying I'm saying I like that that's not how our podcast ends.